If you would, please open up with me in your Bibles to Mark chapter 11. Mark 11, page 847 in your pew Bible, I think. Uh, And while you're opening up there, uh, this, of course, is not Zechariah. Uh, I mentioned that we would be making a bit of a small transition just for the, uh, for the Holy Week, the Easter stretch this Sunday, uh, communion, sun, uh, communion Thursday night, Monday Thursday, and then uh, Easter Sunday morning. Mark this, the Easter story from the Gospel of Mark, right? That's the, the sermon series title. But even as I prayed just now, I hope that perhaps y'all might resonate that, that we do need to mark this. We need to put our eyes upon the Lord Jesus of all times now. But, but because, of, because of what we have been going through with COVID and with all of these different things that are happening. And so as we, as we think about uh, looking to the Lord Jesus and, and planting our eyes on him, we, we find ourselves in the gospel of Mark. A couple things about this gospel. It, it's a little quicker, right? Immediately he goes there. Immediately, he goes there. It's shorter stories that are, uh, that are more distinct and quick where you know just what happened, exactly what Mark, the writer, wanted you to know, and then from there, you go to the next place. We'll see that this morning in Mark 11, verses 1 through 11. Here is the main point. You shouldn't be surprised by it. Jesus is king which means Jesus is supreme. Jesus is king, which means Jesus is supreme. Let's pray. We're going to read Mark chapter 11, verses 1 through 11. Oh, Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for the word. God, thank you for the good news of the Lord Jesus. Thank you that Jesus is king. God, reveal that to us in your word. Lord, By your spirit, take a hold of us, grip us, change us today, and do it all for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. This is the word, Mark chapter 11, verses 1 through 11. Now, when they drew near to Jerusalem, to Bethpage and Bethany, at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples and said to them, Go into the village in front of you. And immediately as you enter it, you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it. If anyone says to you, why are you doing this? Say, the Lord has need of it. And we'll send it back here immediately. And they went away and found a colt tied at a door outside in the street. And they untied it. And some of those standing there said to them, what are you doing untying the colt? And they told them what Jesus had said, and they let them go. And they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks on it, and he sat on it. And many spread their cloaks on the road, and others spread leafy branches that they had cut from the fields. And those who went before and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David, Hosanna in the highest. And he entered Jerusalem and went into the temple. And when he had looked around at everything, as it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. The grass withers, the flowers, they fade, but the word of the Lord, it remains forever. 
this is God's word. We would do well to pay attention to it. Remember what I said uh, that I, I see here and that we can see here as we march through the word that, that Jesus is king, which means that Jesus is supreme. That is, that is uh, uh, holding power beyond that which we ourselves have. That in and of itself is going to come up. It's a point that we need to address. But to get there through these 11 verses, we have uh, five points that we'll march through. First, supreme knowledge. Second, supreme authority. Third, supreme action. Fourth, supreme lineage. And fifth, supreme oversight. First, then, is Jesus' supreme knowledge in verses 1 and 2 of our Bible text this morning. One thing about Jesus that becomes apparent in his ministry on earth is his otherworldly knowledge coming to fruit. He knows things. Not only did he teach, not only did he do miracles, but he just knew stuff, right? Uh, you might remember certain times when Jesus is interacting with an individual and uh, he speaks, for instance, uh, when they lower a paralyzed man down, Jesus says, go, your, your friend's faith has made you well. And, and as they're all getting up rejoicing, if you recall the story, there are some Pharisees, some teachers who think in their hearts, there's no way he just said that to get up. Forgiveness? What are you talking about, right? Do you remember? Jesus says, oh, are you, are you talking about how I can't do this? I'll forgive sins and make him walk away. You don't remember? Pick up your mat. Get on, right? He, it's like he just knew, right? He knows things. So, somebody touched me. We addressed that story the other day, right? I felt some power go up. I know something just happened to me, right? He, he knows these different pieces of the puzzle, and, and it just is apparent as he's moving through his ministry that he has some, some supreme knowledge that, that others don't, his, his teaching, his miracles, his knowledge, it's unsurprising then that Jesus knows where an unridden colt is tied. More than that, Jesus knew he needed to enter the city because alongside this spirit-led, seemingly otherworldly knowledge, he also knew exactly how he needed to go in to Jerusalem when he got there because of the scripture knowledge of God's intention and flow for his ministry. Zechariah, where we have been, chapter 9, verse 9. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he. Humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Jesus is king. Therefore, Jesus is supreme. Which means, then, that Jesus' knowledge, as he is living even in this human capacity, because remember, Jesus taking on flesh as a human, he's not grasping his divinity, though he is God. He is living this life in the frailty of humanity. Even so, because of his perfection, he has a supreme knowledge above and beyond the imperfect, uh, imperfect knowledge of you, or of me. 
which also means, and this is where it gets personal, right? That he knows the intentions of our hearts, good and bad. Let me say that again. The intentions of our heart. I spoke to this a couple weeks ago in a video devotional in John chapter 2. Jesus chose not to stay with the people. Why? Because Jesus knew those people. (laughs) That's why. I, I know those people. I'm not staying with them. What does that mean, right? He knew them. He knew their imperfections. He knew what this was going to cause, and he knew the timing he needed. Jesus knew. But that also means that he knows now our own intentions with what we say and what we do. He knows our inabilities. He knows our insubordinations. And he still gets on that donkey, doesn't he? Not only does Jesus have supreme knowledge, Jesus also has, number two, supreme authority, verses three through six. One of the things that causes humanity to balk, right, to to avoid, to ignore, or to rage against, right, to to, uh, be uncomfortable with the concept of supreme authority, it's the feeling, real or not, of losing control over one's own life and situation. Think about this story in another light. Uh, The need for the donkey, right? The Lord has a need, right? Hey, go here. There's a donkey tied outside of a house. If you go there, untie it, bring it, say the Lord has need of it. If I had a donkey, now this is just Jeremiah's illustration, okay? You're not going to find this in the scriptures. If I had a donkey tied outside of my house, it's probably because I had need of the donkey. Okay? I'm not just going to leave my donkey tied at my front door, right? Uh, You probably, in all likelihood, have some need of it. Perhaps you're going to sell said donkey. Or perhaps you're going to load something on it and go somewhere that day, right? I'm going to put that donkey there tonight. I'm going to wake up bright and early in the morning, put my suitcase on it, and roll out. It's a baby donkey, but it'll fit my suitcase. Let's roll, right? Or, uh, you know what? It'll fit my three children on it. We've got to go to town. I have need of the donkey. And yet Jesus, in his supreme authority, comes and says the Lord has need of the donkey. Supreme authority authority that is above my own even if it's my own donkey if you think about that story that way it kind of opens it up a little bit doesn't it this is the very reason humans typically push against tyrant kings and emperors a claim to authority is made which brings with it a claim to the individual's goods which sets up conflict right In 1 Samuel chapter 8, God speaks to this very thing. God says that even a righteous king in Israel... Now, listen, the people of Israel did not have a king. They saw the other nations, and they said, I want a king like that. It looks really, really nice. Okay, that's what's happening. That's the backdrop to this. And God says, no, you don't need a king like that. I'm your king. I will subdue, protect, defend. I'll do all those things that we confess. You don't need a human to do that. I'll do it for you and I'll do it better. A hundredfold, a thousandfold. You will never want. 
No, 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 no. I want a king like that, that I can look and see. I want that king. And this is what God says that king is going to do. This is, by the way, a righteous king. Okay? This king would take your sons and conscript them into the army and use them for labor. He'd take your daughters because those soldiers would need clothes. And he would need somebody to make that for them as well as to keep those things. He would take your best land because those, that entity would need food and he would need to give that to his vassals. He would take your best grain and vineyards because he would need to eat alongside of his people. He would take your servants and your donkeys. He would take the best part of your flock. And God said, please remember, you're asking for this. I wanted to be your king. And you have asked for this. Now enter Jesus, who has supreme authority, literal, divine right. This is God we are speaking of, who has taken on flesh. And with this literal, divine right, what does he use his supreme authority for? He uses it to procure one colt donkey, which he commits, by the way, to send back immediately. This is the king of the universe, the supreme authority figure. You mind if I get your donkey? I'll get it right back to you. Between me and Elder Rex? Yeah, okay. Uh, between the supreme authority, the king, the monarch? Ah, it shouldn't be like that, right? That's something beyond what we're used to when we think about human tyrant kings and queens and emperors. Jesus is different than any other monarch, though, that you've ever seen, heard, or read about, because Jesus is perfect. The difference becomes apparent then in the third point, where Jesus' supreme action can be seen. Verse 7 so, so we've got Jesus in supreme knowledge and authority, and it starts to bear out in action here. This is the king of humanity seating himself upon a donkey because even Jesus' means of transportation was meant to reveal what he was to be about. Remember Zechariah 9.9, humble and mounted on that colt, right? The baby donkey. He's supposed to be this, uh, uh, this, you know, the king's supposed to come in and war horse and chariot and, and you know, pomp and, and all of the, you know, the, the uh, cheesy, corny-looking long trumpets, right? Blaring out crazy, flags going everywhere. And here comes Jesus on a baby donkey. Feet dragging. Your feet would drag. Now, you don't have to be a, 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 a tall man for your feet to drag when you're sitting on a baby donkey. This is, this is the king. There has been uh, recently, uh, not only just in the last couple weeks, though it has come up again, but in the past couple years, th there has been quite a lot of press surrounding the royal family of Windsor, right? Uh, maybe you're familiar with some of the stuff that's been going on. Uh, one of them is this uh, very famous TV show uh, called The Crown, which uh, uh, the, the monarchy would say is, is not, not so truthful, uh, 
over here and say, well, it's more truthful than you think, right? And then there's historians in the middle kind of looking. There's all of these other things, uh, a new princess coming in and things like that. All of this stuff kind of going around and swirling around uh, this, this royal family of Windsor in the United Kingdom. But, but really when you dig in, and, and it seems like everybody agrees with this part, is that one of the basic premises and concepts of the monarchy in the UK is for it to be above the mundane affairs of the people, right? To, to be removed to the point that they don't really get shocked or swayed by anything that's going on necessarily, kind of ground level. The goal is to create no controversy, remain silent, and wait out any controversy that appears, and thus preserve the monarchy, the line, the lineage, right? When you couple this severe inaction with certain assumed authorities, taxes, for instance, it's no wonder revolutions might take place, the American Revolution being a very good example of this, right? Assumed authority, inaction, leads to rebellion. <laughs> you see it. But Jesus is different than any monarch that we have seen, heard, or read about in history. Here he is on a donkey, but, but as I told the children, it's, it's not the donkey. And it's not the palms. There is a work, there is an action that Jesus is setting out to do and that he is fulfilling as he marches his way into Jerusalem. And here is the difference, right? I keep saying that Jesus is a different monarch. Jesus is a different king. How? It's because he expects nothing from his people right here. When the, when the, when the rubber hits the road, when the donkey hooves hit the dirt, whatever you want to say, right? He expects nothing of the people, but he stands on his feet, the king, and he stands in front of his people to do a work for them, to give them everything they would need to succeed. It's the gospel. This is King Jesus. Uh, he is befitted with all royal power. He could cry out to God the Father at any moment and wipe humans off of the earth. He says this, but he chooses not to do that with his supreme authority and his supreme action. What is it? What does he do with all authority vested in him? He moves humbly into the city that he might continue the path of salvation that was set before him, which he's already told his disciples. It's no secret at this point. He's going to go. He's going to get arrested. He is going to uh, suffer at the hands. He's going to die. He's going to be dead for three days. And he's going to rise again from the grave. That's what he says. He keeps saying it over and over. He has told them this. This is the plan. This is what I am to be about. This is why I have come. I am doing this for you. Yes, I am the king. Yes, I have authority. Yes, I have power. And with my actions will I save you, my people. That is the reality that we see in Jesus' action. This supreme action marked by the humility of the donkey rather than the war horse. It marks the perfection of King Jesus' action moving towards salvation. And so we see 
alongside of knowledge and authority, action, but there's more. There's something very important that must play out if we're to think about the mechanics of salvation and, and how this works as God has been moving this process forward from the very beginning. And it is his fourth point, supreme lineage, verses 8, 9, and 10. The people do a couple things as Jesus enters the city of Jerusalem. Four, actually. First, cloaks are spread on the ground, implying this person comes deserving not dirt or dust, but cleanliness, order, and ultimately respect, right? If I'm going to drape my cloak on the ground, it means that I respect you enough for my stuff to get ruined that you might not get ruined if your feet are dragging in the mud or something of the like. Second, leafy branches were placed in the same way, uh, implication being they're waved as they're placed, right? This would immediately bring to mind the last time that palms were used in such a way, which was when the Maccabees successfully led the liberation of their people in Jerusalem and Judea. Uh, we're not going to have a history lesson, but just so you know, the Maccabees were a family of Jews. This family got a little tired of the stuff that was going down in their place. And so what did they do? They rose in revolution, right? Uh, which is exactly what we're talking about. And they rose up that they might liberate their people. And they did. The Lord blessed them, although Rome came knocking. And so uh, they're not truly liberated. And yet you see this moment where the people swell with the palm leaves, uh, praising God for his work through this family. And so now they're doing it again. And what they feel like is more, it's more this time. Could Rome be brought down by this king? Fourth, or rather third, excuse me. A psalm is quoted. Psalm 118, verses 25 and 26. I mentioned it to you. Hosanna literally meaning save us, please. And so you see here in, in Mark chapter 11 as they're saying, Hosanna, uh, you'll see that in Psalm 118, starting at verse 25. Save us, we pray. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Kind of a combination of those two pieces in Psalm 118. Fourth, as you're leading down to the end, a connection is made to the greatest king Israel had ever known. King David. Now, as all four of these things slam together and swirl, right, as Jesus is coming in, you begin to see and it becomes apparent that there is overwhelming desire for a change to occur from the people. They want change. But the people are selling themselves short, looking to the wrong situation. The cloaks and the palms pull the people's hosanna into a worldly context. These actions emphasize their father David's lesser feats and accomplishments. Here's what I mean. There were a, a whole lot of songs sung by David and about David, okay? Here's one that was sung of his lesser feats, the ones that are not as praiseworthy as some things that came later. You might remember it. Saul has struck down his thousands, David his tens of thousands, right? King Saul was a warrior of warriors. David came and they thought, well, we thought that was a warrior. Here comes David, a warrior king, right? Uh, and so they're thinking as they are laying cloaks down, laying palms down, that this Jesus is going to be warrior king coming again, just as the Lord has promised, or so they thought. 
or so they thought, Jesus' supreme kingly lineage established him in a different way. For God looked upon David and was pleased, not with his outward, exterior appearance. Remember, he was ruddy in his youth. Just a little guy out looking at his sheep. He wasn't even considered to be the king by his own dad. He said, no way it's David. No way. And yet it was. Because remember what God told Samuel? I don't look on the outward exterior. I look on the inside of his heart. And this young one has a heart after me, David, who has a heart after God. And this David received a promise from God, one that would be sung not only by the generations then, not only by the generations in Jesus' time, not only by our generations now, not only by the generations that have come in between, but for all time we shall sing of the promises of King David that he will never lack a son on the throne. Because Jesus is coming and Jesus is of the lineage of David. And so he sits at the right hand of God, the Father Almighty, forever. Fulfilling the promise, saving his people and bringing them with him in salvation. David, yes, he killed his tens of thousands as the people raged against God. And yet that was not his greatest deed by any means. It was his trust and his walk after the Lord that revealed God working in him. For don't you remember as David stood enraged by the people's fear as Goliath towered over them and was taunting them and taunting God. David didn't say, oh, I'm strong enough to do it. Do you remember what he said? It is God who works for us. Why should we fear God is on our side. That was his call, his war cry. God is on our side. And he was. Jesus' supreme kingly lineage established him as the promised savior of his people. But the people looked to their lesser needs, to worldly comforts, rather than their spiritual need of reconciliation with God. They wanted desperately for Jesus to conquer the people around them, rather than to subdue their own sinful hearts. I prayed it, didn't I? I hope you were listening and praying with me. It is easy to cry out to the Lord to subdue the sin around us. Look at these people. Sinners, all of you, I'm going to pray for you, right? It's easy to do that. It is more difficult to ponder upon our own sinful nature and to ask King Jesus to subdue that and to allow us to move in love and service out of a working in our own hearts. And this pulls us into our fifth and final point, and it's shorter. Jesus' supreme oversight. Verse 11. As I mentioned before, the Gospel of Mark is known for quick and succinct strokes across the page with fast transitions to the next event. And this is no less true 
in Mark chapter 11 as Jesus enters on the scene. Uh, verse 11, it, typically this is thought that Peter is talking to, uh, to John Mark who is recording this. That's a, the typical tradition. Uh, and, and I can only imagine, well, what happened next? And then Peter's trying to get somewhere else. And he says, well, he entered Jerusalem and went into the temple. Uh, but when he had looked around at everything, it was already late. So, I mean, we just kind of went back to Bethany, you know? He said, well, like, did he say anything in there? Did he flip any tables or anything? You know, it's like, uh, we're missing pieces. You know, wait a second, you know, what are we doing here? And, and he said, no, 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 he just went in, he checked it all out. Supreme oversight. Jesus looked around at everything. At first, this seems like a too summative, right? It's too big of a summary to give us anything particular. It's, it's just too fast. It's, it's too quick. It's just a it's, a, it's kind of a one-off throwaway verse, but there are no throwaway verses in God's word. The Spirit places them here for our good and for, for His glory. And so, and so as we look and we pray and we ponder, we see that, that Jesus' kingly right, His supremacy allows Him the right to look around at everything. But do we acknowledge that in our own eyes? Do we acknowledge, as we think about this Bible passage, King Jesus entering in on the scene, do we really think that Jesus has the right to look at me or to look at you? And I'm not talking about the you that I see. I'm talking about the you that only you see. The real one that is not so glamorous. The one that you would not want to paint a mural of or to have deeds mentioned. That one. The one that you dare not look at sometimes. That you try so desperately in your sinful mind to look away from or to ignore. Jesus has looked and seen all the carnage of your past. Stick with me on this. Every deep and dark secret that you've never told anyone, Jesus has looked upon it. He has seen it. He knows. He has looked and seen your current inactivity. He has looked and seen your current activity. He knows exactly what you're doing. He knows exactly what I'm doing. He has looked and seen the sins of his people, and even with his supreme oversight, he never once faltered from procuring the salvation of his people. Jesus knew. He knows. He knows you. And Jesus still got on that donkey. He still went into Jerusalem. He still looked at it all, at the faithlessness. And he still did his work. But that's the very gospel, y'all. No faith on your own can save you. No action on your own can save you. No belief on your own can save you. Jesus has looked at you. He knows the fickleness of the human mind and speech, of the heart that's swayed. That's the gospel. 
We are here together as a family because the Lord Jesus, by his Holy Spirit, has grabbed us, gripped us, and pulled us in and given us that hope of belief, that birthing out the new birth, the new man, the new woman, the new creation, life everlasting. It is the good news that we cannot save ourselves and yet we've got a king who came knowing who we are and said, I will save these people and bring them to me and I will make them into new creations. That's the gospel. We can't be caught up on action. Action comes later. When you believe, you simply will act. You can't go from action to belief. You can only go from true belief to action. And Jesus is the one who gives that. And you see it here as he enters into town and he says, I am coming to save you. I have come for centennial, warts and all. And I am going to save you. That is the work of God on your behalf. That is the good news. That is what we celebrate this is who we are. Do not get caught up on the wrong things. We must have our eyes firmly planted upon the Lord Jesus if we are to see him work in our midst. May the Lord do so even as we sing his praises now. Let's pray. Oh, Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you that you are, uh, that you are the one who has revealed Jesus as king, that, that he is supreme, and that, and that in the midst of our own weakness and frailty, he is the one who came, humble, holding salvation for us, his people. Lord, thank you for doing a work in us. Humble us, even as we sing your praises now. In Jesus' name, amen.